this week's podcast, I spoke to Vicky Beeching, given an award last year by the Archbishop of Canterbury for her outstanding contribution to contemporary worship music. Her new memoir, Undivided, tells her story of coming out, becoming whole and living free from shame. You can read the interview in this week's Church Times. Don't forget that you can subscribe for just £10 for 10 issues. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask was um, if you could say a bit about the dedication. So um, I know it's dedicated to um, Lizzie Lowe and we're um, running a piece about the um, films that her church are putting out this week. Um, and I wondered if you could say a bit about why it was important um, for you to dedicate it to her. Um, and maybe I'm guessing that it must have had quite an impact on you as well when when it's um, sort of emerged that she'd taken her own life. Yeah, her story really hit me. Um, I think I just felt so much resonance with her as a person. Um, I was reading quite a lot about her when the news broke back in 2014. You know, she was a young teenage girl who loved going to church. She played um, music, really passionate about learning her instruments and playing at church. And I just, it just seemed like there was so much overlap that it had a really strong emotional effect because I was also suicidal at that same age for that same reason, you know, feeling really torn in two by my faith and my sexuality and feeling how incompatible they seemed, you know, based on church teaching, feeling unable to talk to anybody anywhere about it. You know, I couldn't talk about it at school because of Section 28. Didn't really feel able to talk to my parents or my church team because I, you know, didn't think it would go down very well. So, yeah, I just felt so much resonance with her. And when I thought about writing a book, I thought I want to write the kind of book that would hopefully help people in um, those same struggles, you know, early on in their life. And I really wanted to write the book that I would have needed at that age. But um, my mind just kept going back to, to Lizzie the whole time I was writing. And so I decided to dedicate it to her because I think the stories and the, and the names and the memories of, of young LGBT people that have taken their own life out of a sense of shame we need to remember them because it, it's urgent and the church needs to address this issue. Um, I also thought that um, your introduction was really gracious and you have this example of knowing that some people who read it will disagree and you say, thanks for giving this book a chance. And I've noticed that you also tend to interact really graciously online and often the conversation around this is quite um, antagonistic and you do seem to sort of go out of your way to be incredibly polite to people despite the fact that you've obviously had some really horrible messages um, and I just wanted you to talk about is that hard for you and where do you think that comes from that you're you're able to sort of maintain that um, sort of grace? Mm, it's not always easy. <laughs> um, there are days when I don't feel gracious at all uh, but I think I think for me I feel the need to behave respectfully because I know and love the people who are being so uh, vitriolic to me. And I think that adds a really weird dynamic because I've been working amongst evangelicals and even conservative evangelicals my whole life, leading worship and speaking and teaching in churches. So it's hard for me to disassociate the fact that I know that many of them are actually people that I've known and loved over the years that have been great friends. And so I feel like I try to just remember the good times we've had and the times when they have been really great to me and give them the benefit of the doubt that this is just a topic they don't understand fully yet and that hopefully minds and hearts will be changed. So I don't know. I try and be gracious, but over the years I am, my tolerance is getting less and less, I think, because I just see the harm that is caused by that kind of theology. Are there times when you feel that 
actually um i know there's sort of pressure on people to to sort of do this good disagreement and to try and sort of stay within the same church and and engage in this way but how do you balance that with the need to sort of protect yourself and and maybe actually have boundaries and are there some risks to saying to people you know you must stay you must engage um how do you sort of balance that tension yeah that's such a hard one and that's that's probably the biggest question i get asked in all of my different social media inboxes you know where where can I go to church? Where can I find supportive people and networks? What do I do if I'm in a place that feels really non-affirming? Um, for me, the answer has been that I've had to stop attending churches that that hold um, non-affirming theology. I just can't. I can't be there anymore. It's too painful. Um, yeah, I live in a part of London that's quite close to some really big, uh, big evangelical churches like HTB. And normally I would have been, you know, an avid congregation member somewhere like um, Holy Trinity Brompton, but I just, I need to go somewhere that is really uh, demonstratively pro-LGBT people to its very core. And I need to know that nothing's going to pop up in a sermon, you know, out of nowhere saying about marriage can only be between a man or a woman or something like that, because it's just too triggering. And and also just personally, I, I can't actually watch people leading worship in charismatic churches anymore in from the congregation because it's just too painful because I'm now basically blocked from doing that myself so I've tried to go to those sort of churches and I've just ended up bursting into tears because I see you know people that I know and love leading worship at the front of the church singing and playing and I think I'm now no longer allowed to do that because I am openly gay and it's just too painful so I think many people like me do find it too triggering and too painful and have had to actually leave congregations and go in search of a different church. For me personally, I worship mainly in cathedrals where it's quite anonymous. And I just know that I've got some privacy and nobody's going to come and accost me and give me an earful. <laughs> yeah, sure. I was going to ask about that actually, just in terms of um, have, have you found a church? And I guess it was just an interesting point as well about how actually sort of the evangelical church has been your home. And that's actually sort of the kind of worship that you um, grew up in and, and have written. Yeah, is that sort of still where you would prefer to be able to be if, you know, if the theology were different? Yeah, very much so. I think culturally, the evangelical church is very unique, isn't it? There's a sort of real warmth and friendliness and relaxed vibe um, and the music is obviously the kind of music that I've given my whole life so far to writing and recording. Um, and I've searched for other church homes and they just feel so different. Um, I do now have a real love for uh, more kind of formal liturgical worship. I have grown to love, you know, choral evensong. I love incense now. I think it smells amazing. <laughs> um, and I love the more sort of mystical theology that you often find in uh, more liberal churches. So I do, I do love those places worship too and I think that's why I've gravitated towards cathedrals for the sense of mystery and wonder even in the architecture you know there's something about it that just reminds us that we don't know all the answers about God because he's so vast and these buildings kind of almost you know underline that fact in their very structure that God is beyond us and is huge um, but at heart I would just love to be able to walk back into the places I used to be part of you know spring harvest new wine places like HTB, just to be able to walk back in the doors and actually feel safe and not feel like an awkward relative at a party that nobody quite knows what to say to. Um, nobody quite knows what to, you know, 
bring up it, it does feel like that when I go to those places it feels like being the person at a party that nobody wants to chat to because they don't quite know how to talk to them anymore <laughs> so it's just really painful and I and I miss I miss going to those places very much there's a bit where you say evangelicalism was my home and I wanted to belong and that you felt that that community had slammed the door um in your face and when uh, people read those passages um do you think they'll sort of recognize that picture and think gosh yes you know we have we have reacted in that way and, and they will try to justify that or do you think people you know may, may be surprised and say you know of course we'd love to have her at spring harvest or new wine how, how do you think it will be received and do you think people are aware that of their reaction and, and how it's made you feel yeah i think i think one of the greatest reactions um the church does well is silence and I can't remember exactly who said it. I think it might be Martin Luther King Jr. He said uh, that he would remember um, more so the silence of his friends than the words of his enemies. And I think the silence of the people that I have known well has been overwhelmingly loud <laughs> over the past couple of years. And people, um, you know, some some organizations have said things like the Evangelical Alliance put out a piece right after I came out saying that they didn't believe that that was the right way to live your life and that the correct way was, um, you know, celibacy. So people like that did actually say things specifically, uh, but many other organizations and, and conferences just went silent and did not invite me when they had done so, you know, almost every single year. And so, yeah, and then those places also do not have people who are hold, they, who hold the views that I do. I mean, there's nobody on their platforms singing or speaking or teaching who is pro same sex marriage so it's it's impossible not to take that message away to be honest and i think i've been fair and gracious in all of the ways i've i've handled things but um you know and then in america it has been a lot more blatant i have had lots of messages from american churches just saying we're so ashamed of you and we will never sing your songs again and you are you know banned from our conferences and i think americans tend to be a bit more um straightforward about things but british churches just put their heads in the sand and go silent, which actually can be quite deafeningly painful in its own way. So there's um, a very disturbing passage in the book um, where you talk about an exorcism that happened at a youth conference um, and how harrowing that was and, and really traumatic. Um, and I wondered if you had had any contact with the organisation that ran that um, and also whether you worry that that could still happen today or whether you think things have changed in, in the 20 years since that happened. Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, that conference actually stopped running a few years ago I think um, but um, if they were still running I think I would get in touch with them uh, because I do think it's worth them knowing that it happened at their event um, I've tried to be quite gracious in not naming them because I didn't want them to get you know unnecessary problems from people because um, I don't actually think it is only limited to that event I think I think probably any youth conference, any Christian youth conference is ill-equipped, I think, at the moment to deal with any young person that comes forward for prayer saying that they are, you know, LGBT. I don't think prayer teams really know entirely what to do with that. In my case, at this, you know, youth conference that now no longer exists, they saw it as a demonic issue and began casting demons out of me and it turned into a full-blown exorcism, which was really damaging for me. But I do think that other youth conferences need to really think with their prayer teams about you know how would we handle it if a young person came to the front and said these kind of things? And obviously there are many youth conferences that do still exist. Um, and I just think it needs to be on their agenda. But I've had emails from teenagers who've attended all the kind of big name Christian youth festivals that you can think of 
saying that similar things have happened to them there, not quite as dramatic with so much shouting, but that people have been praying for them to be healed of or set free from being gay or being trans. And I just think that needs to stop. Kind of to, to go back a bit, I wondered if it was actually quite hard to write the book and to revisit um, these times. I was um, interviewing somebody else um, recently and then their book was about growing up in care and also some of the abuse that they'd experienced. And and he actually said it was really hard to write and he still hasn't really um, read the book now that it's published because it's just too painful. And I wondered how, how much it's sort of been quite a sacrifice to write the book. Yeah, to be totally honest, it's been really hard. <laughs> I think I had wondered if it might feel like being in therapy, you know, that there was a ca- kind of cathartic element to going back through it and writing it all down. And I think there has been. When I held the book in my hand for the first time, I did feel a real sense of relief, like like something was over, you know, that I'd sort of been able to close a door on a big chapter in my life. But at the same time, it was really hard to have to relive all those memories. And I wanted to retell it so that the reader could really imagine they were there. So I tried to be quite vivid and visual. And that did really mean stepping back into those memories. So I've had to have quite a lot of of therapy and counselling just to get me through the writing process, um, because it did sort of take another toll on my mental health, to be totally honest just remembering things you know and having to go back to all those difficult places in my head. Um, I thought that the the picture that you painted of your childhood faith was um, really lovely Um, and you know that you talk about how you sort of would walk around and have conversations with God and it was a really sort of live friendship that you had with God Um, and then later on that you say um, faith was still the heartbeat of my life, God was still the centre of everything as he had been since I was four Um, and I wondered if you could reflect on how you retained that because I would imagine that a lot of people would have turned their back on Christianity and certainly on the church um, and you haven't done that and you sort of suggest that in some ways you've retained that sort of childlike faith which the Bible talks about and I wondered if you could say a bit about how you think you manage that. Mm. Yeah it's been hard and a lot of people I think expected that I would lose my faith when I came out um especially a lot of of people, LGBT people outside of the church just said, why don't you just get rid of this patriarchal nonsense, you know, like throw off the shackles of this religion that's kept you in the closet. But I realized that if I did that, I would actually have been putting another part of me in the closet. You know, I would have been putting my faith self in the closet um, because it seemed like it wasn't acceptable for me to be a Christian in LGBT circles, which is kind of ironic, um, having had it be the other way around, you know, having not been able to be LGBT in a Christian context. Um, so I hung on to my faith mainly for one reason, and th- this is this is how I did it. I managed to separate the way that the church had treated me from who God is. And I think if I had not been able to separate those two, you know, the kind of sense of rejection and negativity and vitriol and death threats and all the sort of stuff that came out of the really conservative church, um, if I'd kind of correlated that with God, I think I probably would have lost my faith. But somehow I was able to see God as separate, sitting with me in all the pain, grieving, you know, crying with me and comforting me and and reminding me that actually these people don't adequately represent his heart um, and that his love is for, um, you know, his love is all about inclusion and welcome and broadening the boundaries of who gets to come to the table. And I think remembering that God and the church are actually separate, that's what enabled me to keep my faith. And is it hard to exist? Um, I guess you're actually a bit of a bridge between the two communities um, in some ways. You're kind of a bridge between the LGBT community who 
as you say, might have a very negative picture of the church and Christianity, um, and you're a Christian yourself. Um, is Do you see sort of part of your role as being able to communicate a different sort of Christianity or a different idea of God um, to sort of non-Christian LGBT people? I do. And as soon as I came out, I decided I really wanted to, to try and do that, um, you know, to just fully immerse myself in the LGBT um, cultural scene here and then some in the US as well and show people a different way of believing in God. I, I was really um, excited that I was a columnist for the UK and Europe's biggest selling gay women's magazine for a year. And that was a really interesting opportunity to write uh, about faith in a whole new way. And I've written for lots of different other LGBT publications and been on their radio stations, stuff like that. So it's just been, um, it's been, I think, my goal really just to be out there in the community and also show that it's still possible to have a faith that isn't homophobic and also to to apologize to people on behalf of the church. I do that a lot for the harm that's been caused because a lot of people no longer have a faith and no longer want anything to do with God in the LGBT community. And so in many conversations, I find myself just saying, you know, because I'm part of the church, I'm really sorry for the way we've treated you. And that, that sort of bridge building is a really big part of what um, what I do these days. Obviously, there, there are other um, sort of Christian organisations like Living Out that would um, have quite a different message from you about how to sort of reconcile the two. Um, and I wondered what your thoughts are on, on that approach, kind of celibacy and an emphasis on um, sort of friendship. And I wondered what your thoughts were on, on that approach and whether you sort of had much interaction with people who sort of take that argument. Yeah, um, I've known many of those people for many years and um that sort of teaching is exactly what i have been around and grown up with all my life you know the only way to uh follow god as an uh, you know gay or lesbian person is to remain celibate and for me that teaching drove me to a point of near suicide um i think it just created so much shame because you know there's no reason why you would need to be celibate unless your desires were inherently sinful and that is the problem because if you are a gay person it means that the way you're wired to love and be loved is inherently sinful. And it puts such a burden on anybody to bear that, especially young people, I think, who don't really even understand the nuances of that theology. They're just told that sex, family, marriage, that's not for you. And I think for me, it comes down to God wanting us to be uh, affirmed and to flourish. And um, societally, I think it's a matter of civil rights. I think if anybody is told, oh, you're equal, but you're different. So different things are allowable for others and not for you. I think we just have to look back through history at the, you know, civil rights movement with Martin Luther King. We need to look at the women's suffrage movement and every other incident where people have said, you are equal, but you're different. So other people can do this, but you can't. And I think when you compare it to that throughout the ages, it becomes very clear that this is uh, not just an issue of theological justice, but it's also about human rights. You also talk about how when you were looking at books um, when you were at Oxford, um, you were sort of sceptical about liberal theology. And it does sometimes seem as if sort of people that hold to a more conservative theology sort of try to corner the market and suggest that they are the only people that really engage robustly with scripture and that if you're liberal, it's because actually you don't have a high regard for scripture and you're sort of more focused on um, sort of other parts of the tradition. Um, but in your book, um, it, there's such an emphasis on your engagement with scripture and you sort of spend time in churches, um, yeah. really wrestling with it and, and reading theology. Could you say something about that and about sort of liberal theology? Yeah, that, that would definitely sum up my experience that as I've 
voiced my support for same-sex marriage and for you know being gay myself that people have been incredibly scathing and patronizing and critical saying that clearly I've lost my love for the Bible and yeah I do think there is a tremendous amount of I would say judgmental arrogance about that that fellow Christians can point at others and say you know you've lost your respect for this sacred text just because we see it differently and actually for me um like you say, it was it was about me praying and searching and sitting in churches and seeking God on this issue that led me to my conclusion that I believe that the Bible can affirm same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage, and that enabled me to come out. And many other people have said the same thing. There's so many theologians and professors and tutors in theology departments around the country that would be very quick to say, absolutely, you know, absolutely, this stuff can be endorsed by our understanding of the Bible. And Actually, if you look at the academic community, the conservative view is seen as extremely niche and extremely um, small. So it's interesting just that within sort of evangelicalism in a small bubble, you can kind of feel like, oh, everybody thinks that it's wrong to be in a same-sex relationship, but really they don't. And the winds are changing and you know, history shows that equality wins. So I think it's just worth remembering that actually um, you can believe in same-sex marriage because of your high love of the scripture a um, good example of that is somebody like Steve Chalk. You know, he is hugely respected as a teacher and a preacher and a guy who does, you know, Bible study and scholarship. And it was his high love of scripture that led to him, um, you know, as a straight pastor coming out in, as an LGBT ally. And I think that speaks volumes. I was going to sort of go on to ask if you see um, changes in evangelical culture. Obviously, your book's coming out at the same time as um, Jane Ozan's, and there are other sort of quite high-profile evangelicals who are sort of forging a different path. So do you see sort of signs of really significant change there? I think change is happening mostly in in the realm of people's hearts and minds. And I have uh, so many conversations with pastors and leaders who say to me, actually, we're totally on the same page as you, but we just can't talk to uh, talk about it yet publicly. My campaigning work tends to happen in those sort of forums. I, I do do stuff publicly as well, but a lot of it is actually uh, one-to-one conversations with uh, you know mega church pastors in America who I've known through my music or significant leaders of conferences and churches in the UK, just kind of walking them through this journey of seeing the Bible in a new way. And many of them are now on the same page as people like me, but they just don't feel ready to go public yet. But I think we are literally just kind of a breath away from a lot of very significant people saying, actually, this is what I believe God is saying. And I think when that happens, the tide will really turn. Mm, that's um, really interesting. I'm sure lots of people will um, sort of be really interested to know that that sort of background work is happening. Um, because obviously we often hear about um campaigning from much more public groups so I'm thinking sort of one body one faith and um, some really sort of dedicated work going on at general synod level and engagement with the house of bishops is that something that that you sort of considered going into yourself or do you sort of feel that you're being called to campaign in a different way and also perhaps these sort of conversations one-on-one well I'm very passionate about all of that as well and in the past I've done uh, I've done a lot of journalism and media around synod and all the changes there but I think I'm just excited for a broader uh, a broader change. I mean, the Church of England is my church and I'm passionate about it, but I think Synod moves incredibly slowly. And um, I did consider going on Synod and, you know, kind of going down that route. But I feel like a lot of my work happens more in conversation with people that I've built up relationship with over the years through my, you know, music and speaking career. 
So that kind of seemed to be the right way for me to go. And that's that's where I'm seeing the majority of change happen. And also supporting a lot of uh, younger LGBT people through their journey and just, you know, going for kind of writing and broadcasting and journalistic um, awareness raising that ended up feeling for me like the best use of my time. Something that you also talk about in the book is um, kind of purity culture and growing up uh, with that kind of coming across from America and um, being a really sort of significant subculture in the UK. And you also talk about, I guess, sort of some of the hypocrisy on sexual ethics that you came across while you were studying at Oxford and even sort of really disturbingly the, the rape threats that you received in the US. And I was sort of really interested to read that against the backdrop of um, sort of the Me Too movement and some of the revelations that have come out from some of the mega churches in the US. Were you surprised by those revelations when things started to emerge to suggest that actually some of these um, sort of very powerful leaders in, in the States have themselves sort of been part of this abuse? I do think that the church's teaching on sex and sexuality, it has contained so much repression and shame and sort of taboo secrecy over the decades that I think there has to be some kind of fallout from that. Yeah, and in my book, I explore the fact that it's not only gay sexuality that has been treated in that way, but just all forms of sex, including, you know, what the church would see as good and holy heterosexual marriage, you know. And I've had so many friends confide in me that they were straight couples in evangelical churches who got married long before they were ready to, just because they were so scared they would, you know, transgress the kind of evangelical no sex before marriage rule, and then ended up realizing that they really weren't suitable as, you know, life partners and it led to a lot of pain and often divorce. So I do think the church needs to rethink how it handles talking about sex and whether that, you know, whether that's LGBTQ or straight people, just to get more comfortable talking about it and to re-examine what this kind of really powerful rule about no sex before marriage actually does to people. Because a lot of people aren't actually following it, even in big evangelical churches. And then that leads to its own sense of shame. So I do think we just need to readdress the whole thing. Yeah, I wondered if you think it's possible to sort of find this middle way, because I guess a lot of people would argue that maybe at the other extreme, there's kind of a highly sexualized society and, and that can lead to its own sort of harm. And, you know, obviously you're talking at the other end about sort of a really repressive church culture. Do you think it's possible to kind of find that middle way between the two? Because I guess some people would say that things aren't perfect sort of outside the church either. Mm, yeah, I try to handle it really, um, really carefully in my book. And I make it clear that I'm not in any way saying we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I do think we just need to revisit the whole topic and try and sense what we think is right, you know, for this moment in history, in church history. Um, I think sex is incredibly sacred and that the church has good things to say about sex to the world but I also think we need to revisit our repressive culture that has been one of shame and one of taboo and just figure out how we can actually create a situation where people are feeling comfortable and safe and can flourish in their relationships and just you know figure out together as a church what that actually looks like. I thought a really nice passage was where you talk about your um, conversation with your granddad and how you sort of use the Billy Graham quote about not judging. Um, and I wondered if you um, could sort of say a bit about that relationship and its importance to you and maybe what encouragement it's given you about about what we can see going forward. Yeah, chatting to my granddad was a really big moment for me after I came out because he has been a missionary for much of his life. He is um, a preacher and a teacher. He's from a Pentecostal church background. 
And yeah, he had a very strong view on, you know, God not being in favor of same-sex relationships. Um, and his view was that celibacy was the only way. So I was a bit daunted by my chat with him, um, but he's also very gracious and loves me immensely. And so by the end of our conversation, we, you know, we chatted for a long time, a couple of hours. And by the end of it, we'd sort of gathered around this Billy Graham quote, which said, it's God's job to judge. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. And it's our job to love. And I write in the book about how my granddad and I talked about how we often get our job roles mixed up in life as Christians. And we begin to think that our, our role is actually to judge Whereas it's God's job to judge and our, our job is actually just to love one another and to love one another well and to love sacrificially um, as we would want to be loved back. So yeah, it kind of became a picture for me about agreeing to disagree and existing in love with people and parts of the church who aren't on the same page as you. And I think, yeah, my relationship with my grandfather has given me hope that that is possible on a wider scale I guess just the last question is um what the future holds for you and um there's a passage where you talk about selling your guitars and um also I guess the pain of not being able to do some of the music that you've done in the past but I wondered if you could see yourself ever kind of returning to that or what you think the future holds in, in terms of what you're called to mm, like I did uh, sell my guitars and I haven't actually sung publicly since I think it's well it's, well since I came out maybe a couple of years beforehand so that part of my life is definitely over it just feels so tightly linked to a part of the church that does not accept me now because I'm gay and believe in same-sex marriage so I guess I could have gone into some sort of mainstream music but I just felt too much of a career change you know in my mid-30s so yeah now I actually spend a lot of my time going into corporate places like KPMG Cooper, big banks, accountancy firms. And I speak about diversity and inclusion and I tell my story and I help places like that to create um, atmospheres at work that really make LGBT people flourish. And that just brings me a lot of joy. I also do still a lot of broadcasting, media, journalism, and I'm planning to write more books. So I think my focus is going to be on LGBT campaigning writing, broadcasting, and then this corporate work where I'm hoping to make uh, people's work environments feel a place like a place where they can really be themselves, bring their whole selves to work every day. Thank you so much. Um, that's fantastic. Thanks for taking the time. No, oh, pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment, and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.